0: Uh, I got my first skateboard in fourth grade. And one of the things you learn really quickly when you ride a skateboard, as I'm sure you all recall, is that when you lean one way or the other, it makes the skateboard do what? Turn. Yeah. Um, So like if you're holding a book bag in one hand, guess what's going to happen? You're going to turn in the direction of the book bag because the weights pull you and they lead you. Words are like weights. A negative word spoken to you. You're fat, you're useless, you're ugly, you have no hope, you're never gonna amount to anything. That pulls you in a negative direction. Positive words. I love you, you're valuable, you have potential, you're gonna do something great with your life. Those positive words pull you in a positive direction. Now, not all words are weighed equally. A half-hearted compliment delivered off the cuff doesn't pull you very far towards a positive future. A mean-spirited and cutting remark about your character, well, that's a heavy word. Well, that's going to spin you sideways. Words have power. So hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the of prophecy, because we're going to look at a very complicated piece of the Bible today. And I don't want you to miss the central word for you at the center of it, because of all the other words that you might hear at the periphery. So here it is. God's blessings are born out of love, not obligation. You were made for love. And if you live in love, you're going to receive all the love you ever require. A never-ending, ever-refreshed life of love. Now, I tell you that at the beginning, and we'll come back to it, of course, at the end, because in Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, we have... the the most complicated and confusing piece of a very complicated and confusing book thus far. And I'll be honest with you, I picked it because there's cool monsters. I I don't even want to try and spiritualize it. I was like, oh, cool. There's weird angelic creatures once again. That's what I want to explore. In two chapters, though, there's really three movements, okay? There's a vision of God's glory and God's presence leaving the temple, And then there's a really confusing exchange about a pot and meat being in the pot, and because choice meat is placed in an iron pot, that choice meat is safe and secure to be enjoyed. And then finally, God gives a promise that He'll renew His people and trade out a heart of stone for a heart of flesh. You with me so far? Yeah, right. You're like, okay, wait, wait, time out. What? (laughs) Go back to the thing about love. That I could follow. Okay. (laughs) We will come back to the thing about love. In the meantime, it's God's presence, a pot, and a promise. Now in the first portion of Ezekiel chapter 10, we read again about the, the cherubim, these c- crazy, fiery creatures with four faces covered in eyes, surrounded by wheels within wheels and fire and sparks. They're they are supplying the momentum to pull God's own throne chariot. You see a picture of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who we identify later, is on top of it. And I, I want to make a couple things really clear. When you're reading this part of the Bible, and we read about a temple, we're talking about one of the wonders of the ancient world. We're not talking about a warehouse, we're not talking about a church in Jackson, Michigan. It's a temple, not a chapel. And when we talk about angels or cherubs, we're not talking about naked babies with well-sculpted buttocks. We're talking about terrifying, supernatural monsters. You can call them whatever you want, but they're monsters. And when we talk about Jesus, we are not talking about a homeless rabbi. This is not Gandhi with a Jewish twist. Do you see a vision of Christ as he always was and is again and forevermore will be where he is resplendent, radiant, glorious, powerful, too wondrous to behold? So let's get our biblical imagination correct because it's a very different vision if you see God rolling up in a hoopty and getting out in a bathrobe and some Birkenstocks so he can pet a naked baby. That's a very different story than what's actually in the biblical text. And what happens is God's presence comes up in his throne chariot and leaves the temple where it has always resided since the temple was made. That's where people knew where to find God. You want to be in the presence of God? You want to have a guarantee that you're going to know and experience God? You go into the holy place. You go into the holiest of holy places. That's where, you know where he is. You know where to find him. Until now. God leaves. He leaves because of the behaviors of his people. Now you can look at a very... um, intricate spiritual scenario and you can summarize it like this God's people had fallen in love with the wrong things and as a result they'd stopped loving each other if you want to put a slightly more scholarly spin on it you could say they had given themselves to cultic abominations resulting in social injustice and wrongdoing but that's that's a lot right they'd fallen in love with the wrong things and as a result, they didn't love each other. So God says, enough. And his presence departs the temple. But it goes in stages. Like we're told first that it gets up out of the holy place. Then it pauses at the threshold. Later we're told that that happens for three and a half years. Like God's going and he stops at the door for three and a half years. Why? Because he didn't want to go. Now, if it was people... You know it'd be like one of these, you know? Well, fine, if you don't change, I'm leaving. Here I go. Sweetheart, I mean, you know that that's what we would do. That's not what God does because we're told, we're told that he never turns. But it is, he does delay. He's waiting for his people to remember who they are and what they're supposed to give their lives to. And they don't. So God moves out a little further to the East Gate, which is the the, the portion of Jerusalem where the city wall and the temple wall shared one spot. And he waits again. And they still don't change. So God leaves the city. And still, he delays, waiting for the change that never happens. And finally, he gets all the way out into the mountains. Ezekiel is brokenhearted that this is the message he has to deliver. He doesn't want to tell people this. He doesn't want to put negative words on one side of the people, words of doom, words of of pointed, prophetic judgment. But it's not like they come quickly, and it's not like they're undeserved. They're the right words. And they're supposed to penetrate. And one of the critical questions for you and I, of course, is, Are we, like they, forgetting why we're here and who we're supposed to be? And perhaps a deeper concern for you and I is what happens when you don't know where to find God anymore? Like if you were living in Israel... If you were living back then, there, you always knew, no matter what, you knew where to go to experience the presence of God. Your whole life, for generations, over and over, your grandparents taught you, your parents taught you, you you grew up in it. Now you go expecting to experience God and, and you don't get anything. What happens when you don't know where to find God? What happens when the things that used to help you feel Spiritual, mature, connected, holy, righteous, clear. What happens when those things don't pay off anymore? Like one of the most amazing things, it's always so so neat, you know, when, when people come here, they start coming to Westwinds, you know, and we get a chance to meet them and then they, they say these like amazing things. They're so affirming, you know. Oh man, this is so great. I love the preaching at Westwinds when you're out of town. And... You know, and then they go, they go it's so nourishing, it's so fresh, I just feel so, so edified, so I'm just God's, and you think, that's, thank you, that's so cool, thank you. You also know, because this isn't the first time that you've heard that remark, like, that's not going to last. Eventually, you're going to hear everything I have to say. I remember one guy, he said, I, I started coming to Westlands. It was so great. I went back through the very beginning of your podcast, however many, like 12, 15 years. I've listened, I've listened to every single thing you've ever said twice. I was like, oh, snap. If he screwed up, it's my fault. <laughs> like 100%. And you he could, he just couldn't get enough of it. And then, and then all of a sudden, like the, this, all of a sudden, the, the teaching didn't land anymore for this guy. And maybe you know what that's like. You know, you, you find a, a preacher, a, a leader, a scholar that really speaks to you. Maybe somebody amazing, you know, Tom Wright, maybe John Piper from a, a slightly different camp, you know, maybe, maybe Eugene Peterson, you know, Francis Schaeffer, you, know, you gobble up everything they have to say, and you feel like you're growing in leaps and bounds, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you open their new book, or you go to their blog, or you listen to them preach, and there's just, God's not there for you anymore so you try and find a different preacher a different leader somebody else to, and and God's not there for you either but that's where you've always known how to find God what happens when when instead of preaching or teaching what happens when it's worship man what if you just grew up that that you know you you were so excited to come to, to God's house on a Sunday to lift your hands and give yourself fully to the spirit of God to go to worship meetings and worship conferences and just, just dive in with all your heart into what God has for you and then and then it just doesn't it just doesn't work anymore like what happens when it just doesn't work anymore you're praying you're reading you're studying you're listening you're serving you're you're in the bible studies and then it just doesn't see that's the situation they found themselves in is the place where they knew they could always find god god's presence just wasn't there that is a painful truth when you go looking for God and you can't find him you start thinking maybe God's pretty easy to replace you need some other way to feel safe confident, secure, looked after well that's where pot comes in that's where the pot comes in maybe that's also where pot comes in God names 25 people, shows Ezekiel a vision in chapter 11 of 25 people who are the problem, or a big part of the problem, this sort of cadre of, of political and religious leaders, two of them that God names in particular. So these guys are the problem. And they had a saying. It took me forever to figure out what this saying means, because it makes no sense to me in English. The saying is, this city is the pot and we are the meat. I don't know what that means. I mean, now I know what that means, but like I had to do a lot of work to figure out what the heck that means because at first you read it and you go like, well, that's, that's not a good thing, right? I mean, if the city is the pot and we are the meat, that means we're going to get eaten and then later. <laughs> but what they meant was that the city was a protection for them. A pot it was cast you, you have a pot you drop it the stuff inside is still safe you have a, you have a pot somebody hits it with a with a hammer if it's cast iron pot hammer clings off stuff inside is still safe it means because we are in the city we're safe safe to be enjoyed safe to be luxurious safe to be to be, to be savory safe to be delectable we're, we're safe and this gets really uncomfortable for me because as i start to peel the layers away i realize th- they're safe in their minds because they have money. Because they have a home. Now I really shy away from stretching the Bible too far. You know, a lot of times people will make comparisons for example between ancient Israel and the modern day United States and I think those comparisons are really that can be really dangerous. Here's what they thought. We're safe because we live in a country that honors God. We're safe because people from other countries want to live in our country. We're safe because we're the people who belong here and everybody else is just taking what we have earned. Now again, we don't want to strain the biblical text beyond what it says. But there might be something there for you and I to consider about our own situation. And God gets really mad in two directions. Number one, because these people have found their security in their country, specifically in their in their city. And that's not where they're supposed to find their security. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving your country, clearly. I picked this country. I moved here. I chose it. I like it. I'm not leaving. You can't get rid of me. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with feeling patriotic, with feeling civic pride. It's when that pride escalates beyond God. God was mad at them that they were trusting in the wrong thing and then, and then God was also mad at them that they were using their security to victimize others. Now, let's be clear that the specific kinds of victimization were oppression to the point of murder, right? So it wasn't just that they made other people feel sad. I mean, they were, they were hurting them, killing them, starving them intentionally, forcing them out. I mean, they were, it was extreme, so God says, You've forgotten what the city's for. I gave you this place as a beacon to the nations, and now you're trying to keep the nations out. And so God says, Well, you think of this city as a pot that will protect you? I have some bad news for you. The city is a pot but it's not going to protect you. It will protect instead the memory of the people you killed so that for all eternity, people will look upon you and recognize that because you forgot who you were and why you're here, you got blood on your hands. And then God kills the two people he mentioned by name. And Ezekiel falls apart. He says, God, how can you do that? How can you possibly just start taking people out? And God says, if they are going to do this to people without defense, I will defend them. is it possible that we sometimes look to things before God to protect us? I mean, things that, that really aren't even bad. It's just that they sort of get ahead of themselves. I mean, wealth would be a good one. I think it's foolish to villainize wealth, but it's also foolish to put all your trust in money. You know, f- Friendships would be a, a, another one be stupid to vilify friendships. We need friendships. Friendships can be godly good. I mean, we're, we're relational people created by a relational God for a relationship, but what if you put all your trust in your friends so that you don't really think you need God because they can make you laugh, they're with you all the time, you never have to be alone. What about um like achievement? No, maybe maybe athletic achievement, academic achievement, maybe, maybe musical achievement, maybe at work. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It'd be, it'd be silly to say you should just suck at everything, you know, to be spiritual. That's dumb. But you know, what, what happens when our achievements give us a sense of security that really only God can provide? And you say, well, yeah, Dave, but I mean, I can... I mean, let's be honest, I sort of, I got a little bit of money, I got some good relationships, I've I've got a few good achievements, I I feel good about those things, and they're tangible, whereas I don't know where to find God anymore. That's why God makes us a promise. See, the presence, it's become elusive, the pot is dangerous, but God makes a promise that he's gonna trade out our hearts of stone For a heart of flesh. Let's listen to what he says here. Ezekiel chapter 11. I'll gather you from the people and I'll give you this land. And I'll remove all the detestable things and their abominations. I'll give you one heart and one spirit. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you instead a heart of flesh so that you can walk In my ways, and I'll be yours, and you will be mine. So God says, "I'm going to take this this way that you have of thinking and feeling and being this heart of stone. I'm going to replace it with something better." Now, the heart of stone. I mean, that's a you know, for the Hebrew mentality, this for the Semitic peoples in the ancient world. That's the simplest way to think of it is. The way of being. It's a little bit your head, it's a little bit your feelings, it's a little bit your gut instinct. To say that you have a heart of stone means that you're never going to change. Like there's there's no life in a stone. There's no evolution in a stone. There's no metamorphosis in a stone. It's done. It's this thing. That's all it's ever going to be. What was their heart of stone? Was that for them? Everything with God was a trade. It was a transaction. Right? We go to the temple, we make the sacrifices, you bless us and make our name great. That's the deal. So we go to the temple, we make the sacrifices, do your job. McFly, do your job. But that, that's not how God works. God's blessings are born out of love, not obligation. So you say, "Why? Well, I did all the things. Your turn. That's not how it works. That's not how any relationship works. You uh, buy a card for your mom on Mother's Day. Write your name at the bottom. Love, Dave. Don't even lick the envelope. Give it to her in the little white plastic bag that comes from Walmart. Sort of chuck it on the table in front of her. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. When's lunch? Is that... That feels good to your mom? You uh, in love with somebody, so you say... So you, you do the dishes, you know, get the kitchen nice and spotless, and then say, all right, time for bed, take off your clothes. Does that, does that work for you? Does that feel really good? Love is not a transaction. Love is not an obligation. Love is not compliance. You can't make a trade and expect that it's gonna feel like love. That's not what love is. Not even close. We have some good teaching on love. And I want you to think of this in a way that probably you haven't. Maybe not at this level. Because Ben's right when he says last week that what God wants is you. He wants to love you and to be loved by you. Loved. Not enslaved. Not Entrapped. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm like a gong or a clanging cymbal. If I'm spiritual, I go to church and and I serve and I give the money, but I don't love. I'm annoying. You ever met any annoying Christians? I mean, they're so quick to remind you of how good they are and how good you're not. And you just think, go. If I have prophetic power and understand all the mysteries and, and all knowledge, if I have all the faith, faith enough to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I am intelligent, motivated, convinced that I am right, but I don't have love, I'm worthless. Absolutely worthless. If I give away everything I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. I make all these sacrifices for you. I got you a card. I did the dishes. But if I don't have love, I'm useless. I'm useless. See, without love, doesn't matter how spiritual you are, you're annoying. Without love, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're worthless. Without love, it doesn't matter what sacrifice you make, you're useless. Love is the thing that makes everything else work. Love is patient, love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude doesn't insist on getting its own way it's not irritable or resentful it does not rejoice when someone else is wrong but rejoices with the truth love bears all things believes all things love hopes for all things love endures all things and love never fails as for prophecies they'll pass away tongues they'll cease knowledge that'll pass away too For we know a little bit now, prophesy a little bit now, but when the perfect truth is revealed, these partial truths will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I loved like a child, I was immature. but now that I'm a man I put those childish things behind me now we see in a mirror dimly but then we'll see face to face now I know in part but then I'll know in whole even as I am fully known, which is to say what? It's to say you're finally starting to get it, man. You're finally starting to get that even a message about monsters and metaphors is actually a message about love. That even the complicated and judgmental portions of the scripture are not designed to confuse or to hurt you. They are designed to teach you about love. And you might only get a little bit of that right now in 30 minutes, but eventually you're gonna get it all the way. That's why these three remain. Faith, hope, and love but the greatest of these? Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your goodness and faithfulness to us. That you delay our comeuppance. That you promise us that things are going to be good and good again and whole again and worthwhile again. And so we cling to that promise in your name because we need it. We need it. We ask God for your grace and forgiveness. Not that we've earned it or deserve it. But since you offer it, we eagerly and greedily accept it. Teach us how to love. Teach us how to love you and to love in your name. These things we pray. Amen. Uh, This morning we're going to